Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, welcome back on this Friday, uh, February, gosh, what is it? So February 7th. Uh, I want to take, uh, once again, some time to talk about this coronavirus, as well as for, for those of you that have been long time listeners, supporters of this podcast, some time to talk about, once again, the economic impact of this. Because, well, I mean, that's part of my roots. Just like yesterday, I was getting back to my roots on precious metals. I talk some economy part of this as well. But I do want to start off with kind of sort of the, the title of, of today's podcast, talking about the number one number to watch is, as this continues to spread across the globe. And that really is the number one thing to watch right there as it spreads across the globe. What I mean by that is in China, the, the numbers coming out are, they continue to increase the amount of cases. However, the number of cases increasing per day has actually decreased over the last two days, roughly, compared to prior. You know, as uh, Chris Martinson actually pointed out quite well, this is looking more like a quadratic increase rather than an exponential increase in cases within China. And it actually fits these models uh, suspiciously well, as though China was making these numbers up as they go along, right? Which is probably true. China is incredibly opaque and it's it's uh, unrealistic to expect them to A, be able to accurately catalog all these cases in the first place. We're talking about a country of you know, what, one and a half billion people. We're talking about cases which are potentially in the hundreds of thousands, if not over a million already in their borders. It's unrealistic for them to even have the resources resources to do that. But second of all, I mean, everything the Chinese regime does is in the name of social stability. The idea of another Tiananmen Square, the idea of any sort of major unrest, which was already a potential in 2020 with slowing economic growth, the African swine fever, a different virus, which wiped out not humans, but a mass amount of their pork population. I mean, uh, Societal unrest has always been a huge concern of, well, almost any large government, whether we're talking Soviet, Russia, or France, with their Yellow Vest protest, or the United States, and, and it's just maybe even a little bit more true for China, and so obviously any information coming out is going to be not with the intent of, of giving the best information possible to us, or to the WHO, the World Health Organization, or to their own people, but with the attempt of, of creating social stability. And so what this is looking like is not an exponential growth. You, you guys know what an exponential graph looks like, where where it uh, the, the rate of increase just well, exponentially rises. You know, it, it goes up and up. If you've ever seen, you know, flashback to, to high school or maybe college, uh, we're talking about a quadratic formula where early on it looks exponential, and then it, it you know, it's almost... I'm trying to think of a good way to describe how this looks, but it, it slowly becomes, 
you know, it flattens out eventually, the number of cases. And that's sort of where this is heading according to these official numbers. And so let's throw those out, not because they're not fitting maybe our narrative of this exponential increase and this huge risk to the globe in terms of this pandemic, but because they're undoubtedly fake and inaccurate, even if China was trying to be transparent about this. And instead, what we need to watch are, is the number of cases globally, the number of cases outside of China. Now, these aren't going to be fully accurate either. You know, I, I've said in previous podcasts, it is concerning, to say the least, that we have zero, to my knowledge, last time I checked, zero confirmed cases of the 2019 novel coronavirus in South America and the entirety of Africa, the entire country of Africa. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to call it a country. People still do that. No, none of the countries in Africa have a single confirmed case, to my knowledge. There might be, you know, by the time you listen to this, one or two or something like that. But no, not. I mean, it's they just don't have the ability to test for it in some of these areas. That the healthcare system is just not what it is, even in China, right? And even in some of these countries that have very close links to China. Southeast Asia, which actually has a fair number of reported cases, although we'll get more to that in a minute here. It's a very an interesting case I wanted to bring up, but, but you know, Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, Cambodia, uh, you know, Myanmar, all those countries, um, the Philippines, Indonesia, right? They're, the case count's rising, but it's maybe not as fast as you would expect. I think they're missing quite a bit of cases in those places. Uh, but as we see this rise, we're going to get a better sense of this true spread of this, especially in these countries where, where the healthcare system is not as robust, or they just don't have some of the same precautions or the full-on quarantines that have been put in place in China. We'll get a truer sense, I think, of the r not and of the true lethality and the infectivity of this coronavirus. Another interesting thing, though. Now, in those situations, Thailand or, or Japan or Vietnam or even India, we're only getting part of the picture, right, in terms of the amount of cases. Because society is just so open. It's what We're talking hundreds of millions of people. You, you can't possibly test them all. You can't possibly test everybody that comes down with flu-like symptoms or fever or pneumonia. It's just not possible in those countries. And so you wonder, you know, are we blowing this out of proportion? Are there a ton of people that are getting something like the common cold or maybe just a bit of a flu, a bit of a fever-like symptoms? And, you know, in places like the Wuhan hospitals, they're just getting the extreme side of things and maybe we're blowing this out of proportion. You always ask yourself that. Especially as we've learned more about these cases that have just been very mild symptoms, you know, how many people have gone undetected. And then there's the other side of it, you know, how many cases of pneumonia or of, of whatever, even deaths in these countries have gone unattributed to this novel coronavirus because it happened before it was even known to be in the country, before they were able to test, or because it's just too poor of an area, or because they didn't even go to the hospital in the first place. You always wonder. And so what's really interesting is, is it's, it's sort of tragic. I mean, depending on, on how this ultimately ends up, tragic. And yet a really great case study, a large-scale case study, is this Japanese cruise ship, 
right? It's it's last time I checked off off the uh, coast uh, or or docked at Yokohama in Japan. It's a Japanese cruise ship with the several thousand on board. In fact, there's another cruise ship off of I think Hong Kong that is in a similar situation, though we don't hear about that quite as much. And these are separate from the Italian cruise ship from like a week or two ago. That one ended up being a, from, as far as we know a false alarm. But this Japanese cruise ship, several thousand people on board, and originally there was, I think, like one person that had this coronavirus, and they were worried about it spreading. And they were right to be worried, because not too much later, I can't remember if it was one initially or if it was ten cases that they found. They found another ten cases, and then most recently, last I checked, they found another 41 cases. So 61 cases, right? And what's nice about this is that they're probably, I would imagine, going to test most of the people on this ship if they can, you know, give consent. If, if these people, um, you know, show any symptoms and everything, they're going to test a large amount of people on this ship, and it gives them a decent idea of the infectivity of this, of this virus. How quickly can it spread in those types of spaces? You know, we're already up to 61 individuals confirmed. I mean, that's that's pretty infective. I don't know how long they were on this cruise ship. That's pretty significant but you're also going to get a good sense of the uh, amount of cases here that present with the various symptoms the fever the pneumonia how many require i think all of them have been hospitalized nothing else just to quarantine them although the rest of the ship has been quarantined for at least two weeks but to, to quarantine to provide medical treatment you get a good sense of you know what is the rate of complications and ultimately what is the death rate you know in theory if the death rate's at least two percent you would probably have at least one death with the caveat that the cruise ship individuals may not be a good cross-section of the broader population they may be younger they may be wealthier they may be in better health that's maybe not they could be much older maybe this was a geriatric cruise ship i don't know maybe this was uh, you know, I, I guess I don't know the average health of the Japanese or, or whoever it was that was on this cruise ship as far as ethnicity and country of origin and everything. I don't know their health situation, right? But it may not be representative of the broader population. And the other thing that we have to be wary of is the fact that, well, this is very well known and, and this would be early on in the stages in, in terms of a pandemic in, in Japan. And so they have, you know, all the health resources in the world pretty much still to throw at these six at this point 61 cases right so uh you know the idea that their their hospitals are gonna be overcrowded it's just they have more than enough beds at this point to treat these 61 individuals so good get a good idea of you know what is a complication rate how many of these people are really a, uh, in a severe condition from this coronavirus and you know hopefully they test probably the majority of the people if not all of them on this cruise ship eventually for this coronavirus and then you'll get a sense of what's the rate of of mild symptoms uh, just a cough or sniffles or just a low-grade fever and what is the rate of potentially people that contract it and are asymptomatic just carriers it's a really good case study and I, and I hope that you know the the Japanese CDC or whatever they call it obviously is, is on top of this and they take advantage of this uh, of this opportunity it's a unique opportunity right 
But again, we have to be watching all these statistics worldwide, uh, including this cruise ship and, and these developed countries. But also, you know, there's there's that there's the ugly side of it. You know, what is it doing in some of these undeveloped countries right now that haven't reported cases yet, but undoubtedly probably have a case because if, again, as I said in the past, if China is exporting cases to the U.S., Japan, South Korea, Russia, much of Europe, almost every Southeast Asian country. You know, the Philippines, I think Indonesia probably has cases. Australia, I think New Zealand has cases. India, Mongolia, reportedly maybe North Korea. You know, if they're exporting to all those countries, including the ones that are far away, Europe and the United States and Canada, what about Mexico? What about Brazil? What about Central and South America? What about Nigeria, Tanzania, Mozambique? Uh, Zimbabwe, South Africa, Kenya, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. Egypt, you know, Middle Eastern countries. What is the scope of it in those countries at this point in time? Because it's there. It's undoubtedly there. And without control measures, you know, this thing has a pretty nasty R naught of anywhere from, you know, two and a half to maybe four plus. You know, they, they have the advantage, some of these countries, of not being as cold. I mean, some of these are pretty temperate, or uh, temperate's probably not the word, tropical, warmer climates, and even, you know, some of the ones that, that aren't as close to the equator, well, they're still in summer. And so that's generally a positive for viruses, but it's not like the influenza doesn't spread during the summer. It just spreads less because viruses, you know, there's, uh, I guess what, what many people have said is, probably thought for a long time was, you know, viruses spread easier in the winter because of more people in confined spaces. But then also, well, people find out that actually viruses do better in the cool, but also the dry air of the winter. You know, I don't know how it does in a hot, dry climate. I don't know how it does in a humid, warm climate. But you got to think that, I mean, some of these places are still going to make it very easy for this virus to spread. It's not like it's just not going to um, make it anywhere if, if, if it's a warm, humid climate. I think it's still, you know, in some of these poor areas, very high potential for it to spread. It's not like these places aren't, weren't affected by the Spanish flu or, or won't, you know, aren't affected by influenza or other similar, you know, viruses. So, yeah, it's, that's sort of what I'm watching right now is international cases, the reported ones, and, and what's the rate of increase on those? Because those are much, much less likely to be doctored. There's are many countries that the potential for conspiracy is, is far, far lower than the actually likelihood, the high likelihood, I think, in China. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, the cruise ship, because it's just a, an excellent series of case studies. It's, it's, it's you know, a controlled environment. You, you If they test everyone, have a good uh, a sense of how many people actually are going to come down with it and what's really the, the characteristics of this disease, at least for this 
group of individuals in terms of age, ethnicity, um, level of fitness, and of course the, the high level of, of medical care that Japan currently can provide. Um, so, and then finally, keeping an eye on these countries that undoubtedly have cases within their borders, but haven't had any reported cases yet. That's that's really concerning, and the longer that goes on, this could could be very bad in some of those countries if this pandemic is, is truly as deadly as as it's proven to be, be in, in places like Wuhan and, and elsewhere. Now, moving on to the economic impact of this. You know, I talked earlier this week about... Uh, Kia and, and Hyundai shutting down some of their production lines in South Korea because of the whole supply um, chain just really seizing up on China's end. China's just shutting down factories. And indeed, you know, yesterday they're contributing to a, another story that I discussed earlier this week, Tesla, which has come down a ton. It's still crazy overvalued. You know, I talked about how on Monday Tesla, the car company, the electric car company was valued, you know, market cap put it at a valuation of, you know, in the same ballpark of Ford, GM, Fiat, Chrysler, and Nissan, not individually, but combined, right? all those companies combined, same, you know, similar value. Those come down quite a bit in price. And part of that, at least yesterday, was that, you know, Tesla announced that they would be, you know, closing some of their, you know, stores, their shops. Uh, their dealerships in China in response to this. And that, I mean, that's right now, I mean, Tesla traders are, are, are just looking for something to cause this stock to go down. That's not unexpected. It's obviously, you know, bearish for them because, I mean, yes, China, uh, Tesla, you know, China really figures into Tesla's long-term profitability and, and maybe the, the rationale for their current valuation. But, I mean, it's not just Tesla. Tesla's a very small portion of, of this overall slowdown in China and, and, and the amount of companies that are just closing up shop literally over the last couple weeks. You know, the ones that made news a week or two ago were, were companies like McDonald's or, or Starbucks or Apple, but, but a ton of domestic Chinese companies, a ton of international companies. You know, Fiat Chrysler recently warned about this very similar situation that, you know, supply chain-wise, this is, this is not good, right? And so, I mean, if, if everything's under control and if this really is a quadratic type situation in China in the sense that, you know, these cases will level off and then eventually, you know, decline, well, eventually this thing can get started again. But I mean, the, the, the second that you remove a quarantine, the second you, you tell everyone you can go back to work in these shops, these factories, etc., they can take to the streets again and, and on their commute and whatever. I mean, that's the second you do that, that same point in time, you risk this R not the, the spread of this disease moving back up again. And suppose this isn't under control, like China is is kind of portrayed right now, that these cases aren't leveling out, or or maybe they're they're leveling out in the millions or hundreds of thousands growth per day rather than a few thousand per day. You know, and what if these deaths are, are hundreds or thousands per day, not just double digits? Then you know this is going to last much, much longer, right? And eventually the same situation will likely spread, if not to Japan and the United States and South Korea, you know, to this extent, at least to the Southeast Asian countries. I mean, Vietnam and, and Thailand and, and, and uh, Indonesia, the Philippines, I mean, these are the same countries that a lot of these companies 
relocated from outside of China into because of you know these you know these U.S. trade war you know for the last coming up on two years I think or or uh, you know some of these other situations. I mean that's they already were relocating and now the place they're relocating to could be hit just as hard as as China's being hit. Right. So the economic impact from this is far from over. And then there's the transportation aspect of this you know what's happened what's going to happen to these airline companies that or, or or these cruise line companies that are going to close up shop for a while or see a, a huge decline in traffic you know some of these companies have limited exposure to the asian or the chinese market but what about the ones that operate almost exclusively on the continent or exclusively within china you know, if they're a Chinese domestic company, they're going to need to be bailed out pretty darn quick here if they're not already, you know, nationalized. I, I don't, I'm not familiar with the Chinese airline industry, I guess. Um, what about, you know, cruise lines? Or, you know, touristy-type uh, um, companies and destinations. What about mass transit? Subways and buses. And, I mean, those things cost money to run, and, and they're going to be huge costs to these governments, these cities or, or provinces or whatever runs them, funds them. And what about trade from China? What about shipping? I'm talking air freight, but, but also by sea. I mean, you're already seeing a huge drop in the rate, uh, uh, the cost for the shipping, which is already just really having a rough time because of this trade war and because of a bit of a slowdown and whatnot, economic slowdown. You're seeing the rates, you know, the cost for this decreasing even more because the demand just isn't there. And then there's the oil aspect of this. You're seeing a huge shock to the oil um, industry right now, to the oil market, because of the drop in decline. Because everything's just slowing down. Everything in China and worldwide takes oil. Whether it's shipping, whether it's tourism, and airlines, and mass transit, or factories whatever i mean it's it's a it's it's just less energy being consumed whether it's oil or coal or whatever and, and you're seeing the oil drops pretty significantly and and you know the whole scheme of things will that hurt maybe a country like saudi arabia you know i think so i mean they really need that price to be pretty high to, you know for long-term social stability because of just how expensive their society is i mean but it's certainly going to hurt countries like russia or the united states I mean, the United States is is one of the actually the largest oil producers in the world now. We're a net exporter, at least pretty recently we were. And a lot of that is shale oil. That's expensive oil in places like Texas. And it's only getting more expensive by the year as they go through, you know, jump through more and more hoops to, to extract the, extract this oil. I mean, we're talking deeper and deeper drilling, horizontal drilling, more and more uh, stuff you know liquids and water and whatnot to pump into the ground and then they have to deal with that and then they, i mean they have to deal with the natural gas that, that as a byproduct they're, they're oftentimes just venting into the atmosphere rather than you know condensing it turning it into liquid form and shipping it somewhere because it's just so cheap it's just not cost effective for them to do that well pretty soon i mean this oil shock is going to hit the shale oil field i mean they were looking pretty good about a month ago with with this whole iran situation you know, things were looking up for the shale oil sector, which is just saturated with debt. A ton of debt. 
And and it's only so much a matter of when, not if, you know, it ultimately falls apart. But with low oil prices, that is going to cut into profits. It's going to eliminate profits for a lot of these companies. And what that means is more losses and a need for more and more debt to roll over that debt at probably a pretty high rate. A lot of this is junk rated already or soon to be junk rated. I mean, the shale oil sector is almost, you know, it contributed to the 2015-2016 economic slowdown in the United States. It is sort of on my list of the potential sectors of the U.S. or even the global economy that could lead to a major slowdown. Because if you see those companies going belly up, or if you see them, you know, their profits being cut significantly, what that's going to lead to is a rout a crash in the junk bond market or the really close to junk bond market and now in junk bond status. And what I'm talking about is the, the loans that are on the brink of, of what high yield bonds, which is a euphemism for, for junk bonds. They're on the brink of being rated there and, and all it's going to take is a huge decline in profits or you know a huge decline in, in the price of oil for that to happen. We're, we're really close to that already. And, and so the longer this goes on, you know, sub $50 oil, uh, if it drops into the 40s, uh, you know, closer to $40 or even below that, I mean, it's only a matter of time before these companies go belly up and before uh, junk bonds and, and investment grade, uh, a lot of investment grade debt moves into that junk bond status and junk bonds just, you, you see yields really blow out and, and maybe even the spread between investment grade and junk bonds blow out. and. And that's you know another potential side effect, which ultimately stems from this very same coronavirus. I mean, who knew these Microsoft microscopic particles, uh, these virus? Uh, I mean, really, all they do is they're just chunks of DNA and, and whatnot, and they you know, cause such a response from the body as they take over these cells and turn them into you know their own factories. I mean, who would have known? We already know how much damage viruses can do to the human body, but even on the economic scale, that, that could be just as deadly and, and just as damaging as, as the actual virus itself. Thanks for tuning in to today's uh, podcast. As always, I'd like to thank every one of you for tuning in uh, to today's podcast. You know, if you're over on YouTube and you're still listening over there, that's fine. Um, but just a reminder, I am on most major podcast platforms. I really appreciate every one of you that listens on YouTube, but also, you know, on you know, Apple podcast or Google or, or whatever, you know, that's been a big push over the last month or two for me. And not something I talked about for, for several weeks now, probably. Um, but it is something I, I asked my viewers to do, you know, switch to the podcast format because I'm, I'm sick of YouTube and, and the way they, you know, a lot of my videos recently on this coronavirus topic have been demonetized. A lot of or, or shadow band, just not nearly as many views as usual. And, and I mean, I don't know, maybe it's just my content, but it certainly reeks of, of YouTube uh, interfering as they have with so many other channels in the past. And, and that's why I prefer the podcast format and the platform. So as always, thank you for tuning in from the bottom of my heart and God bless.